Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Today in our second last program of Journey to the Cross, we'll continue our study of Jesus' suffering on Good Friday of the Passion Week. Let's turn now to the Gospels with Dr. John Newfeld, who takes us to the scene of the crucifixion with a lesson called The Journey Leads to a Bloody Cross. Father in heaven, what we speak of today so fills our heart with revulsion, we can hardly bear to look at the cross. But Father, look, we must, for in this is our glory. O Lord, I pray, as we listen and as we think and imagine, Father God, I pray, help us to see what really happened to the praise of your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know that the universal symbol for Christianity is the cross. And if you really think about it, this is amazing. For in the ancient Jewish and Roman world in which Christianity was born, a cross was a symbol of shame, defeat, and even the mark of a curse. That the founder of a faith who claimed to be the Messiah and the Son of God should die on a cross was considered by many either impossible or laughable, a reason for mocking. And yet early Christians and Christians today think that the cross is the greatest reason we have to boast. In the cross is our forgiveness, our salvation, our hope, our peace with God, and our access into God's presence. And what's more, God's ways are vindicated in the cross. We glory in the cross. However you think of Jesus, do not think of his life as one of popularity and fame until everything went bad on Passion Week. Isaiah called him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In other words, he was on a first-name basis with suffering. The most familiar part of Jesus' experience on earth was not laughter, pleasure, or gratification. It was sorrow. He's rightly called a man of sorrows. He suffered terribly under the withering attacks and temptations of Satan. He suffered as would-be disciples deserted him for being an extremist. He suffered when his own disciples adamantly refused to believe him on certain points. He suffered threats against his own life. He suffered when he was slandered, and he so frequently withdrew by himself to pray. And after a life of suffering, his suffering culminated on the cross. It's Friday, and it's still early morning. Having gone through six trials that started the previous night, Jesus is now condemned to be crucified. Pilate has tried to set Jesus free, but the howling mob will have none of it. And in our day and in our society, where we do not practice the death penalty, we sometimes look at repulsive things like decapitation practiced by ISIS with such horror. How can such barbarism be a part of the human spirit? How can such evil be openly displayed by men who are proud as if to trumpet how savage and ugly and evil they actually are? But in truth, Decapitation cannot be compared to the horror that is crucifixion. Crucifixion has been called the cruelest way to put anyone to death in human history. It was deliberately designed to make the process of dying take as long as possible, but to balance that by maximizing the pain. So you want as much pain as possible without actually killing the person for the longest period of time before the victim succumbed. In Roman times, some victims took literally days to die, and that was intended. So how did the crucifixion work? Well, first came scourging with a whip that had nails or pieces of bone woven into the leather straps. With every blow, whole strips of skin and flesh and sinew would go flying up into the air. There are records of many a condemned man dying during this process alone. If the criminal survived, his back would literally contain no skin covering, but was laid bare as a bloody piece of lacerated flesh. 
And according to John, Pilate had Jesus scourged before he was sentenced to be crucified. And he did this, allowing Jesus to be horribly abused so that when he presented Jesus before the crowd, they might look at his violated body and feel some pity, but it had no effect at all. The crowd howled for crucifixion. The blood of Jesus set them off like a wolf pack. Let's put all this into context of what we've already learned about the suffering of Jesus. Please notice the suffering Jesus had already undergone. We noticed that he had no sleep in the last 30 hours or so. We noticed he had agonized in such prayer the night before that the blood vessels in his face had broken and blood dropped from his forehead to the ground. And then he was arrested. And then he underwent not one, but according to the four gospel writers, he underwent six court cases. And during one, he had been beaten during the trial. All the while, the slander had only intensified. Now he is flogged not once, but twice, the second time so severely that the flesh and sinews of his back completely disappeared. But even in such a state, the crowds call for Barabbas. Jesus engenders no pity. And then he is called to carry his own cross. And I find myself marveling at his remarkable physical stamina. Jesus must have been a man of considerable physical strength, even to be able to stand, if not to shoulder what must have been at least an over 100-pound cross and begin to drag it as blood trailed after him through the streets of Jerusalem. The Roman authorities had reasons why the condemned should be made to carry their own instrument of torture and death. First of all, it stripped their victims of every last ounce of dignity. And so we see him stripped of any beauty that we should desire him. Or do we? Many of the early Christian preachers, among whom are men like the great preacher John Chrysostom, noticed the similarity between Jesus carrying his own cross and Isaac carrying the wood of his own sacrifice up Mount Moriah, which, by the way, is the very same hill. In the case of Isaac, God stopped his father from killing him and provided instead a ram as a substitute. But in the case of Christ, it was his father who carried out the execution, for Jesus was himself the ram, the honored substitute for the whole world. According to Roman custom, a man about to be crucified was led to the site of his execution by the longest possible route, so that everyone could see and mock him and remember that anyone who posed Caesar and Rome would have the same ending. And so in this way, he was again dishonored. And yet something significant happened along that route. According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' strength gave out. His his legs wobbled, and he fell beneath the cross. He couldn't get his distressed body to obey him, to lift the heavy cross, and, and just to keep walking. And realizing this, the Romans laid hold of, or literally arrested, a man named Simon, a man from the city of Cyrene, a city which today would be in the nation of Libya. When Mark tells the story, and remember, Mark wrote this gospel to Christians who were in Rome, he adds a detail the rest don't include. Mark 15, verse 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Now listen to this. Mark says, The father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. Only Mark includes that he was the father of two sons. And you might ask, why do we care about his kids? And yet, in Paul's letter to the Romans, in Romans 16, verse 13, in which Paul greets the Christians in Rome by name, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. From the earliest church history, this man Rufus has always been identified as Rufus, the son of Simon of Cyrene, the man who carried Christ's cross. Now, we don't know what happened to his brother Alexander. Perhaps he was in another city or he died. 
And by the time of the Roman letter, it would appear that Simon of Cyrene had already died, but his wife had been like a mother to the great apostle Paul. Apparently, Simon and all his family had come to faith in Christ as a result of that one encounter with Jesus. Now, why am I saying this? simply to help us see that while Jesus is being humiliated and mocked, Simon of Cyrene saw something that changed his life and gave him faith and changed the eternal destiny of his family. We should see Jesus as ministering to people and changing their lives from the cross. It's almost impossible to imagine. See him stumbling up the Via Dolorosa, concerned for the women who are weeping for him. And that's what we need to see about the cross, Jesus fulfilling his ministry. He is on his way to the place of the skull. It was probably called that, meaning it was the place of death, the place where Rome made alive men into dead men. He would drag his cross through Jerusalem, then to go outside the city walls to a place that smelled like death, that was filled with blood and urine and feces and flies and stench. This was an unclean place, a place of horror outside the walls. Yet while going there, being mocked and ridiculed, he is drawing people to faith. This is the profound mystery of the cross. Jesus himself had said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And he was going to that place of agony. Then Jesus and the procession reached Golgotha, and Luke tells us that there are two others who are being led away to be put to death with him. And all four gospel writers record the exact same words in chorus. All four tell us now, they crucified him. Such simple words, they crucified him. In the ancient world, everyone would have known what those words meant. Jesus was no doubt stripped naked, his arms then stretched out as far as they would go and nailed to a crossbeam. The Greek term hands refers to hands and arms together, so it is thought that the nails were inserted just above the wrists between the two bones of the forearm. And if you've ever hit your funny bone, it feels like that. The nails pounding in there would crush the median nerves and would send searing pain shooting through his body. The feet would then be nailed next, put to the side, putting the victim into a kind of a side saddle position, and some suggesting that the nails were in fact driven through the heels to make sure that the strain on the wrists would be relieved so a person did not pull off the cross. Then the cross would be lifted from the earth and dropped into a hole, sometimes dislocating a person's shoulder sockets. And when we come back, we're going to see that in this state, Jesus would minister to people and he would pay for the sins of the world. It's difficult to imagine in our modern day what the victims of this horrific death penalty would have gone through. But no doubt this introduction has given us a a glimpse of the barbaric nature of crucifixion. It makes us realize that our Lord experienced the worst form of death possible in the world. Yet we see that despite this, Jesus was still drawing people unto himself as he was suffering for the sins of the world. And that's an amazing thing to ponder. These days, many rely on their mobile phones for more than just talking. Today, there's an app for just about everything, including our new Back to the Bible Canada mobile app that makes all of Dr. Neufeld's messages and resources available at your fingertips. Listen daily, read our blog, watch ministry videos, and hear about upcoming events. It's so easy to download on Apple or the Google Play Store. Any questions? Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. <music> 
hanging on the cross would not allow the victim to breathe properly because the chest cavity would be pushed unnaturally outward so one couldn't inhale. When the victim's longing for oxygen became unbearable, he would have to push on his feet to relieve the weight on his arms, thus grinding the nails in his feet and dragging his lacerated back against the rough wooden cross. This would go on for hours and in many instances even for days. In some cases before death, victims would have gone quite insane from the agony. If the soldiers wanted to mercifully end a person's life, they would simply take a sledgehammer and smash the victim's lower legs, leaving him unable to lift his body up to breathe, and he would die of suffocation. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mentioned that Jesus was crucified between two common criminals. And so there's Jesus suffering the same fate as the two men on either side. Isaiah the prophet said, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. On the one hand, he peers no different than them, another transgressor. And yet, is he not different? Remember that as the soldiers pounded in the nails, rather than cursing and profanity, or even begging for mercy, according to Luke 23, 34, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. I notice he is concerned even for the one who crucifies him, for he, unlike the elders of Israel, did not understand. This is but Christ's first word of ministry from the cross. Please notice that Jesus spent about six hours on the cross before he died. You might think that all that could be said about these six hours would be a further rendition of the horror he suffered, but such is not the case. Yes, it is true that the soldiers divided up his garments and those who passed by shouted insults at him. You who said you would tear the temple down, well, what a joke. You can't even get yourself down from that cross. And the chief priests and the elders of Israel were especially scathing as all the pent-up fury now vented itself as they heaped abuse on him. And as the abuse goes on, the two men being crucified on either side also amazingly join in. But Luke notices that at one point in time, one of the two criminals stopped and said to the other, Don't you fear God? We are receiving the penalty for our sins, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus from the cross utters his second word. He says to that man, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice now the effect of the cross on a criminal, on Simon of Cyrene and his family. But of course, the story is not done. Before the first three hours are over, Jesus has already spoken to John, the disciple from the cross, entrusting his mother into the care of John. According to tradition, John cared for Mary in Ephesus, where she also died in old age. Jesus' last three hours on the cross are the most dramatic. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say it was now the sixth hour. According to Mark, Jesus was first crucified somewhere around the third hour, somewhere around nine in the morning. Since it's now the sixth hour, we're assuming it's somewhere around noon. In anticipation of what was to follow, darkness fell over the land until the ninth hour. Luke says the sun was obscured. We know that this was not a solar eclipse because Passover always occurred during a full moon. The only way to explain this amazing event was that God himself intervened. The darkness might mean that God is displeased with human sin that would even crucify his son, or that all creation trembles at what is now occurring. So what occurred during those three hours? Well, we don't know all the details, only that Jesus was in great agony and at the end of this time, he cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
To call Jesus our propitiation is to say that he is our wrath-bearing sacrifice. In Gethsemane, he fully realized that he must drink of the cup of the Father's wrath. On the cross, the full fury of an offended righteous God for the sins against the whole world had been stored up. Imagine a great dam holding back a whole lake, allowing only a trickle of water through it. Imagine the level of the lake rising through an excessive spring runoff and the pressure against the dam being increased exponentially. That lake represents the righteous anger of God against humanity for all their sins. The dam represents God's future promise of the cross by which he would hold back the punishment rightly due the world. As sins increase, the pressure against the dam grows with increasing force, ever making the day when the dam breaks one of inconceivable fury that will wipe out everything in its path. What the Bible teaches us is that the dam broke on the cross and poured full into Jesus. No one ever experienced such displeasure from God as Jesus did, for as our sin substitute, he took the full punishment for the sins of the whole world. I believe that's why the sky grew dark. And that brings us back to Christ's question. Why have you forsaken me? The meaning seems to be, why have you forsaken me for so long? Jesus suffering the wrath of God was not for a minute or two or ten. It kept going hour after horrifying hour. The dark weight of sin and the deep anger of God poured over him, wave after terrifying wave. My God, why have you forsaken me for so long? How long must this go on? At some point in time, Jesus receives his answer. The second last words of Jesus on the cross were, it is finished. The punishment for our sins were now satisfied. God's anger had now abated. And the awfulness, which you and I will never understand, had been accomplished. It is finished. And with that, he would say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. At that time, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew says that the earth shook and the rocks were split. Many tombs in Jerusalem were opened and some of the righteous dead were raised to testify to the identity of the one who had died. A centurion who was left to guard the tomb, so overwhelmed by all of this, in awe and terror, cried out, Surely this man was the Son of God. Luke says some of the jeering and curious crowd who were there until the end began to beat their breasts in an act of grief and terror. And in the end, all that was left was a group of women who had loved and followed Jesus. And the Bible says that evening was fast approaching, and the Jewish elders didn't want to see bodies left hanging on the cross, for the next day was the day of preparation. That meant that the next day was the Sabbath, and the Sabbath during Passover week was a very special Sabbath, so the bodies needed to be done away with. And Roman soldiers therefore came with sledgehammers and broke the legs of the two men on each side of Jesus, and instantly they suffocated and died. But Jesus was already dead. And so a soldier took his spear and threw it into his side, producing a mixture of blood and water, indicating that his heart had ruptured. John ends the account by saying, These things came to pass that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Indeed, many scriptures were fulfilled on that day. I'm going to read just one of those from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. 
but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My dear friends, this is the picture of just how ugly my sins are and your sins are. And this is the picture of just how beautiful is the love of God who would send his son to die for your sins. He asked you a question. Are you overwhelmed yet? Are you filled with profound gratefulness? Do you just want to stand with arms lifted before God and say a hundred times, maybe even a thousand times, thank you, oh my Savior, thank you. John, that is a great message, a thoughtful message, and one obviously that makes us consider all that Christ went through for us. When it comes to Good Friday, how do you go about thinking about Good Friday or experiencing Good Friday yourself? I was raised in a home in which we were not permitted to laugh or to be jovial on Good Friday. It was supposed to be a sober day, and a part of me agrees with that today, but not quite. I think there's a joy in the cross that ought to overwhelm us. We ought to see it as a very somber day, no doubt. But we ought to also be filled with joy. I think we should meditate on the cross. Uh, We should see the great love of God. We should say with Paul, I will glory in the cross. Um, We should even say, I wouldn't boast in anything except in the cross. So I guess what I'm thinking we should have in our own traditions and how we live on Good Friday we should set aside all the other things that we normally do. Maybe it's a good time to turn off the television. Maybe it's a good time uh, not to do the things that we normally do. Don't go out and shop on Good Friday. Make this a time to be somber in the presence of God, yet joyful. John, thanks again for your reflections today as we consider the crucifixion of Christ and all the sacrifice that was given for you and I. And we look forward to tomorrow as we consider Jesus' triumph over death through his resurrection right here on Back to the Bible, Canada. What does the cross mean for broken, sinful humanity? I think this message has really hit at home. It means everything. I hope this lesson has been deeply meaningful to you as we take the time to reflect on both the sheer brutality of Jesus' death, but also the beauty that is found in the great love of God. Indeed, this kind of love is one that our human minds can barely fathom, I pray that we may walk away from today not only with the knowledge of what happened on Good Friday, but with renewed hearts that want to love, honor, and serve the great King, Jesus Christ. Tomorrow, be sure to listen as Dr. Neufeld wraps up our series, Journey to the Cross, with a fitting message on Jesus' triumph over death through his resurrection. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 says, The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. In the culture at large today, you don't hear much talk about wisdom. Yet those of us who know our Bibles recognize that the subject is critical to know and apply in our daily walk. 
That's why Dr. Newfeld focuses our attention to understanding the wisdom discovered in the book of Proverbs in his series, Skillful Living. Dr. Newfeld explains some of the core themes of Proverbs, including the definition of wisdom and how to build one's life from the inside out. This month, we want to give you the entire five-message series on CD for free. So order your copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or email us at info at backtothebible.ca.